It's Dina Kispe, lead producer here. I want to talk to y'all about a recent report from the Environmental Integrity Project. It showed that from 2019 to 2021, six Houston area refineries had dumped 55 gallons of chemicals in the Houston Ship Channel and other public waterways. As crazy as that sounds, it was all done legally. So I'm wondering, what? How on earth could that amount of chemicals being dumped in our water be legal? Should we all be freaking out? Here to answer all my questions is contributor Lauren Steffi. It's Monday, March 6th. I'm Dina Kispet, and here's what Houston's talking about today. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us again. We've missed you. <laughs> Happy to be here. All right, let's get into it. This was a story that the entire team was just like, oh my God, like freaking out over. There was millions of gallons of chemicals that were dumped into the Houston Chip Channel and other public waterways legally. And I was just reading the chemicals. Some of them, I don't even know how to pronounce, how to even read it. It was so complicated. And seeing that going into our water is absolutely horrifying. How is that even allowed? How is that even legal? Well, the way the federal regulations work with things like the Clean Water Act is they they don't prohibit the release of chemicals into the water. They set limits for how much, you know, how many particles per million or, or whatever are allowed, um, you know, uh, under the law. And so, you know, the recognition is that when you have something like a refinery, it's it's going to produce bad stuff. I mean, you know, it, it just unfortunately the byproduct of what they do, um, you know, there's a lot of chemicals involved and mm -hmm. just run off alone, you know, could cause some of that to be released. And so there's sort of this recognition that there's always going to be some amount of, of, you know, for lack of a better term, bad stuff that's coming out of these things. But, you know, there are, there are harmful levels and then there are acceptable levels. And that's what the law tries to distinguish between. Um, of course, the, the, the real issue here is that a lot of those laws were written 40, 50 years ago, and mm -hmm. they may not be uh, as up to date as they need to be. Right. Yeah. I mean, do we have any, like, footing to even freak out as just like regular civilians who don't really follow regularly what refineries are dumping into our water and seeing and reading that it's like millions of gallons is it alarming um i mean it it it's alarming um uh, you know i mean i guess anybody has the freedom to freak out if they want to um you know i mean right. it, it is something that doesn't get a lot of attention i think most people aren't aware of the fact that these releases happen and that they're that they are legal under the law and um you know i, I mean look over time, these things can build up. We know um, from studies that have been done, you know, in the 10 years after the Deepwater Horizon disaster, for example, that, you know, there was a lot of, of chemicals and, and oil residue that has accumulated on the floor of the Gulf of Mexico, for example. Um, mm -hmm. So we haven't done a great job scientifically of of determining the long-term effects of having some of these things in the water. How do they affect, uh, you know, fish, for example, waterfowl? Um, that was one of the things that they actually did study after the Deepwater Horizon. And um, they found that, you know, some of these chemicals can actually change the sex of fish so that they can't reproduce. Um, so, you know, yeah, they, they, there was, there was, um, I forget what, 
what type of fish it was. But anyway, th there's a lot of things like that that are being studied now that we didn't have the technology to study back when these laws were written. And so mm -hmm. I don't know that we, we shouldn't be freaking out, but we should be taking uh, perhaps a harder look at some of these regulations and seeing if we need to update them to reflect what we now know. Mm -hmm. No, that's so true. I mean, you had mentioned that there is an acceptable amount. Granted, these refineries have broken and surpassed the quote-unquote acceptable amount and have been fined for it. Why is there even an acceptable amount, especially now given that we have present-day research pointing at the issues, the long-term issues that this could potentially have? How do they even determine an acceptable amount? How do you say like, oh, you're allowed to dump this many chemicals in our water and it's totally fine, we're good? Well, <laughs> you know, legislation gets written by by negotiation and compromise, right? And so, um, you know, you you had one side that really didn't want to have the regulations at all, and another side that that wanted to, you know, protect the waterways. And so, what where is an acceptable point where we can come together? Um, you know, that's kind of how you get there. Uh, the the other thing I would point out that in addition to the laws having been written many years ago. Uh, a lot of these refineries are actually very old facilities. Um, parts of them, at mm -hmm. least, have been built, you know, as far back as the 20s. Um, and so bringing them up to a modern standard can cost billions and billions of dollars. And what you're seeing now is we, we all need gasoline still, right? But mm -hmm. if you're looking, if you're a company that owns a refinery and you're saying, well, do I want to invest? five or $10 billion in this facility if gasoline demand is going to drop off in 10 years and everybody's going to drive electric cars? You know, mm -hmm. maybe not, yeah. right? You may not get that money back. And so um, that actually complicates this this uh, issue of, of, you know, protecting the waterways because there may not be a lot of incentive for these companies to spend that money. And, you know, this being Texas, we are we are not going to see the, mm -hmm. uh, the the regulatory crackdown that you might in, in some other places. So, I know. <laughs> that's true. I mean, that's true. I mean, I'm just curious, like, how are environmentalists responding to that report? I haven't actually heard how they're responding to that particular report. Um, generally, you know, environmentalists get outraged about these things. And, and that's, yeah. honestly, that's their role. Um, you know, it is to to be kind of a megaphone for these things and to make sure that the public is aware of what's happening. And, and you, you know, many years ago, I, I interviewed a CEO of a major oil company, and he said something that I thought was very interesting. He said, um, he said you know, our industry is a lot better because of the environmentalists. He's like, we all get tired of them nagging us, but they have mm -hmm. made us operate more safely, more cleanly, and just more efficiently than we would have if we had been left to do it on our own. And so I, th I, I do think that, you know, within the industry, there's always a lot of pushback uh, against environmental organizations, but they do serve a purpose and, and they do kind of move us in the right direction. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I mean, these are concerns that we need to be constantly reassessing and looking at, and we don't necessarily need to overreact, but we do have to kind of recognize the fact that, you know, again, from a scientific standpoint, we just know a lot more about the long-term effects of some of these chemicals than we used to. And we're dealing with an industry that, quite frankly, has a long history of trying to minimize those long-term concerns and sort of say, well, we don't really know because we don't have any information on, I mean, you know, it goes back to in the 1920s when the industry industry pushed leaded gasoline. And even though we knew lead was an industrial toxin, the industry's response was, we don't really know that it's a, a problem if it's in gasoline. 
Um, well, it was. You know, I mean, we did yeah. we did kind of know that, and, and we certainly know it now. And so, uh, you know, the industry has its own agenda, and it's not necessarily mm-hmm. in the long term best interest of the public. But um, but we also need their products. So that's yeah. why we have an industry to begin with. So, you know, it's a it's a balancing act. I know. Thinking about it from an, a different, completely different perspective, right? This, the chemicals have to go somewhere. They have to dump it somewhere. Where else could they put out this discharge? Where, where else could it go? You've, you've kind of hit on the crux of the problem. I mean, most of these plants, most of these petrochemical plants and refineries are located in places like the Houston Ship Channel because they need easy access to waterways, right? So that tankers mm-hmm. can bring in raw materials. They can ship out refined products. Um, and that is the most efficient way of moving that stuff. And so they're all near waterways. And quite frankly, the easiest way to discharge this stuff is to to put it, to release it into the water because it's right there. Mm. Um, the only other option you have is to capture it and transport it someplace and, and you know, mm-hmm. bury it things like that. Um, and, and some of that happens not necessarily with this type of waste, but with other types of waste, which we saw, for example, with the train derailment in Ohio, right? They, they excavated right. a lot of the contaminated soil and they, they tried to ship it to Texas. But in fairness, I mean, the EPA has sites where they have established, I mean, my wife saw that and she's like, why do they, you know, why are they sending it to us? You know? Right. And I said, yeah. well, you know, because the railroad doesn't maintain a facility in case this happens. Right. But the EPA does, the government actually has facilities ready to go to handle this stuff. And it's built to certain standards so that it can be contained and all that. And we actually want that as taxpayers, we'd rather it be stored in a place that we know is safe and that has been designed to hold this kind of stuff than something we're forcing a company to do. And, uh, you know, on the fly, right. Um, we don't have time to make sure they're not cutting corners and things like that. So there are ways to dispose of this stuff, but as a practical matter, when you're talking about something about like, like refinery waste, you know, that's probably just not going to happen. Hmm. Okay. And I, I saw Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee tweet about it and talk about how this really has to stop. I remember we even, you know, just talking about the dumping of the chemicals in our wastewater. We, um, one of our producers had, was able to like, in a separate interview, was asking the mayor about it, and he actually had no idea that this was even happening. Does the city have any plans on addressing the recent report about the environmental integrity project about dumping waste into the waters? Basically, there's like six refineries in the Houston area that's pumping 55 million gallons of wastewater into the Houston Ship Channel and other public waterways. And that I will have to take a look at because we certainly don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. And if, and, uh, if, for example, the facts are that that's the, the case, mm-hmm. then I think we're going to do everything we can to stop that. That is not what we should be doing in the city of Houston. And quite frankly, uh, if it's occurring, it needs to stop like yesterday. So I'm curious, at the local level, what can we do to address this? And should we address it? Yeah, I mean, you know, most of the regulations you're talking about, um, they really need to come at the state level. Um, because, you know, a lot of these facilities are not actually, you know, in the city limits of Houston, for example, or they're, you know, but they're close by and they could, so, you know, we saw this going back to the, to the Texas city explosion in the late forties, right? I mean, that, that plant was actually outside of municipal jurisdiction. And that was part of the reason Mm -hmm. that that tragedy occurred. 
and and yet the consequences were borne very much by the city, right? So what you want to have is is a, a broader regulatory scheme, and that ought to be at the state level. Unfortunately, in Texas, we have the the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, which I have and, and many years ago dubbed them the the loving lapdog of polluters. I mean, they they work very closely <laughs> with the industry. A lot of the people there mm-hmm. are actually priming for jobs going to work for the very companies they regulate because they can make more money. And so it, it, it's, a, it's not a very strong uh, regulatory enforcement uh, process that they have. Um, and, and I think that's unfortunate. But that's, uh, that has been a characteristic of Texas for many, many years. You know, we, we like industry. We want the jobs. We are willing to sort of play this role. And this is, this is the trade-off we make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you brought up the explosion in the 40s that happened. And, you know, now with them stopping the shipment for now, at least, I don't know, I'm curious how long things like that have been happening where we would have from different states toxic chemicals shipped into Texas. How does that fit into the whole grand scheme of us having this abundance of toxic wastewater around us and now even having them shipped from outside? Because I actually never even knew that. I always thought it was just every state figured it out on their own. <laughs> I didn't think we were getting <laughs> toxic chemicals from outside from a different state. Well, I mean, keep in mind in Texas, we have a lot of wide open spaces. Um, so if you're going to bury toxic waste, we have a lot of places that, that you can do space. that. And it doesn't, <laughs> you know, it minimizes the the impact. Um, and, you know, the other thing that's worth pointing out is a lot of those things that happen in rural areas this can be an economic benefit for areas that don't have a lot of other options. So, you know, there was a plan, I don't know, 10 years ago or so to, to bury nuclear waste in West Texas at one point. And I think that that went away, but you know, that was one of the things that was pointed out was where they were going to do it. You need people to constantly monitor that and that creates jobs. And, Mm. you know, this was an economically depressed area where there weren't a lot of opportunities. And so that comes into play too. Um, But I do think coming back to the idea of, of, the local involvement, at the very least, local officials ought to know uh, what's happening. And I think the public has a right to know what's happening as well. Um, Because, you know, these are complex problems. And Mm -hmm. there are kind of these vast networks for dealing with them. But we we have a right to know how it works. We shouldn't be asking ourselves these questions after the fact, right? We should know Mm. how this stuff works. Um, you know, for example, you know, what are, what are the restrictions on, on, you know, toxic chemicals being shipped through the city of Houston? There's rail lines all through the city. Um, mm-hmm. I believe there are restrictions against shipping, you know, certain chemicals, but I, I, you know, it'd be worth knowing, right? I mean, the public should be asking these questions. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when a lot of people don't know, you yep. know, even the fact that there was the whole report that came out where they said millions of gallons were legally being dumped into Houston's waters. I mean, I, I'd feel like some of our listeners would wonder, you know, how does that really affect me? Should I care? Should I not care? For people who really just don't know anything about it, what would you say is the the most important factor as to why they really should pay attention? Well, I think with, with any of this stuff, you know, education is the key. I mean, if you're concerned about it, you should find out. But also understand that there's a reason these limits exist. And, and you know, we can debate whether those limits are correct or, or whether they need to be adjusted and that kind of thing. But we can't have that debate if we don't have informed people 
talking about it, right? And it's not a question of one side is right and the other side is wrong. The industry is not all bad. The industry provides a lot of benefit um, for Texas, for Houston, for the country. Uh, and that has to be weighed against the the environmental costs that's being borne by that and the costs that people living in and around these areas uh, have to deal with. What is not acceptable is the way it has been done in the past is a lot of the people living near these areas have not had the economic or political means to have any say. And that's not okay. You can't have people living in you know areas where they're exposed to, to toxic chemicals, for example, uh, just because they can't afford to live anywhere else. That's not a, an acceptable solution. And I think we have made some progress on that, um, but there's more to be done. Mm-hmm. I agree. Lauren, anything else that I might have missed that you want to make sure you get across? I guess the, the, the ultimate issue here is that if we want to get in our cars and be able to go where we need to go uh, for right now, you know, this is a big part of the cost of that. And, and it's, it's more than just gasoline. I mean, that's kind of the biggest thing when we talk about refineries, mm-hmm. but we're also talking about petrochemical plants. So, you know, if you want your yeah. uh, fleece pullover and your, you know, uh, whatever, I mean, these, there's a price we pay for that. And, and we kind of, we kind of hide it from ourselves. We don't often think about that, but mm-hmm. this is the balancing act we have to do as a result of that. And it's easy to say, oh, this is bad. We shouldn't be dumping this stuff. And it's like, okay, well, the easiest way to not dump it is to not create it in the first place, but then we're not going to be able to go anywhere. So we're not going to be able to get goods that we want and things like that. So, you know, it is quite a question of finding that balancing act and it's not quite as clear cut as, as it often seems when you first look at it. Mm-hmm. And in Houston, you can't get anywhere if you don't have a car. <laughs> It's not one of those cities. <laughs> and not only that, but in, in Houston, you know, the refining industry, the petrochemical industry, these are major employers that have been a part of the city yeah. for a very long time. And so, you know, in many ways, you're talking about one of the core industries that made Houston what it is. So, you know, uh, again, it's a, it's a tricky balancing act. That's very true. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on today. You bet. Thank you. That was our contributor, Lauren Steffi, that you just heard. All right, before y'all go... The Miller Outdoor Theater is celebrating 100 years this year. And with that, they've announced their first concert of the year. On March 17th, you'll be able to get some fresh air, a little picnic, and a concert. And you might want to dress in green because it'll be on St. Patrick's Day. It'll feature the Trinity Irish Dance Company. And if you can't catch that one, don't worry. There will be several other concerts this month, including a Michael Jackson tribute. So if you love the outdoors and you love free fun, yo, this is the spot. Check it out. That's all I got for y'all today on CityCast Houston. Tomorrow, we'll be back with another episode of our Food Tuesday show. This time, we've got the food blogger Sean the Food Sheep. Don't miss it because he's going to hit your sweet tooth where it hurts. He's going to tell you all about the hidden gems from around our city. Till then, ta-ta! I definitely went in this freaking out and I'm coming out of it being like, yeah, I kind of need my car.